what it comes down to is in, in the most simplistic way is buyers think it's 2008 and sellers think it's 2021. Let's get ready to scale. Hey guys, welcome back to yet another episode. Today I have with me Ryan Razaleski. I don't know if you caught it last time, but Ryan is one of our acquisition analysts. He is a numbers guru and he joined us last month and will continue to join us each month to keep us up to speed with what is really happening in the market. Um, a lot of things people read in the news makes you think that you have an idea, but really there's so much more behind the scenes. So that's what we're here to share with you today. And Ryan, I really appreciate you joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Ryan, let's jump right in. And today is Thursday, February 2nd. So yesterday the feds came out again with yet another announcement, not uh, as painful as some of the previous ones, um, but nonetheless, you know, there's still some action happening. So why don't you unpackage that for us and help us understand what does this really mean for where we're at and where we're likely to go? Sure. Yeah. The, the feds came out yesterday. They increased rates another quarter percent. Um, so the, the 25 basis point increase is actually the smallest we've seen since March of last year. So in a lot of things are pointing to a, a de-inflationary de environment. Um, that, that's been a lot of conversation at this point. I mean, that was the verbiage used yesterday. However, it, it leaves us wondering where the terminal rate will be. Um, and a lot of groups are, are speculating that we're going to see another 25, 50 basis point increase be based on the guidance received yesterday. And that's what it comes down to is it's not necessarily the, the 25 basis point increase from yesterday. Everybody expected that to happen. What it comes down to is it's the guidance, it's the verbiage that's used uh, to tell us where we're going. It's the same thing as, as the public markets on the quarterly earnings reports is we, we know what's happened in the past. We know where we are today. We are looking for to we are looking to read in between the lines and understand where we're going in the near future. So that that four and a half, four, four and four and three quarter um, target rate. That, that is being kind of quoted in the market is 175 basis points above where we were in March of last year. So you can clearly see the feds are, are proactively trying to get ahead of inflation. We're seeing signs of, of growth um, or, or at least moving in the right direction for the simple fact that back in Q2, Q3 of last year, inflation was topping 9%. And now in December, we're ending at six and a half. So that there, there is positive signs. However, we still have a little ways to go. Well, I think all in all, that's good news, right, guys? That's actually good news. It means that the strategy that they've taken and implemented is being effective. It is having um, the results, you know, that it's needing to have. And all in all, you know, ideally, we want to be able to get back to a more stabilized economy. And I think it's encouraging that we're seeing that we're moving in that direction, even though there's some growing pains, obviously, along the way. Yeah, and, and specifically in the real estate space, it, it's certainly going to impact transaction volume. It, and we've already seen that kind of happen all the way Q4 into the beginning of this year. Um, and it, it's going to cause a recalibration of, of underwriting. Um, and it's going to further widen the bid ask spread that everybody was trying to kind of pinpoint and, and hoping would collapse in the first quarter of this year and then just extend all the way through the year. But we, we have still yet to get there. And, and there's really two type of buyers in the market today, specifically in the real estate space. You're going to have some of those groups that want to transact early in the year. They want to lock in their rates now and, and not have to worry about transacting later on in the year from 1031 exchanges for whatever it may be. Um, 
And then you're going to have other groups that, that might sit on the sideline because they haven't seen that terminal rate. We haven't seen where we peaked yet. And they might, they might write their business plan to transact later in the year. They're going to be a lot more selective on the deals that they're buying, um, but they're going to lock in now and, and they're going to write in their business plan that they're going to anticipate rates to moderate, stay flat, or potentially come down exponentially, which nobody can predict that at this point. We're looking five, 10 years out, but they're going to look at a capital event. They're going to look at a recapitalization. They're going to look at a refinance, um, and they're going to write their business plan based on what their perception is in the market today. Sure, absolutely. And it definitely is creating, I'm sure, um, you know, some challenges when it comes to underwriting, because, you know, how are we going to, you know, project a lot of these different factors? And then, of course, you know, one of the biggest factors being, you know, inflation and then its overall impact also on cap rates. Um, you know, so obviously there's a lot of factors that all go hand in hand together, um, you know, kind of along that, you know, note, where are we today with, uh, you know, inflation at this point? Yeah. And how are we underwriting for it moving forward is actually another tidbit I'd like to know, and I'm sure you guys would too. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about the underwriting and, and kind of the impact in, in the shift or transition, if you will, of, of kind, of, kind of how we're underwriting deals in the market. But um, multifamily is, is a hedge against inflation. Everybody knows that. And there's a lot of reasons, um, just, just the, the pure necessity of, of renting. Uh, you have rent increases that's offsetting the, the expense increase in this inflationary environment. Um, and most importantly, there's the, uh, the national affordability gap of, between renting and owning today, uh, which doubled in 2022. So the, the rising interest rates really mm -hmm. made it unaffordable to purchase homes. And um, you're looking at mortgages that are, are a fraction of the size that you could have purchased um, back in 2021. So I don't even think it's necessarily a matter of just unaffordability. I also think it's just common sense. It's just you know, even if you are in the position to be able to do it, it really isn't a smart time to make those types of purchases, um, which, you know, continues to keep a lot of renters renting. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's all specific on, on everybody's uh, personal balance sheet and, mm -hmm. and what their goals are and, and what their household formation looks like for their family. But um, we, we also, it benefits us. We're already in a supply constrained market. Um, we do have a supply wave coming through this in the next two years that was delayed from 2022. However, there, there's still an undersupply of homes in, in the, the country and it, it's supporting demand drivers and, and it's keeping the fundamentals of the industry. So we're, we're going to see that in the short term. It's, it's driving more demand into the house, into the renter pool today. Um, as well, it's it's keeping people that might necessarily might have transitioned later on or earlier on in life. It's going to push them out, so they're not going to be able to purchase these homes, or, or they're not going to be able to kind of take that step that we've historically seen the baby boomers come earlier. Um, we're, we're not going to see that in the same demographic, so it's going to keep people renting for longer. Let's also talk about something that I know everybody has been seeing in the headlines, which is unemployment. There's been a ton of layoffs in January. And, you know, just to give you guys some insight into those that don't know, uh, before my days in real estate investing, I did executive headhunting and uh, worked in IT, finance and accounting and some other industries as well. Uh, so a lot of my professional background actually stems from that arena. And, you know, it's really interesting because I happened to be on the phone uh, with a good buddy of mine who's a CIO of a very large organization out of uh, San Antonio, Texas. Shout out to my, my folks in San Antonio. And, um, you know, we were talking about in the media, this is this really seems alarming. It really seems scary. Um, you know, by the numbers, you look at it, Microsoft laid off 10,000, Google laid off 12,000, Salesforce laid off 7,000 and so on and so on. 
And it sounds incredibly alarming. And it's giving this perception that the tech industry is just completely falling apart. But, you know, when I was talking to my good friend, we were both kind of laughing about it because if you don't understand the significant amount of hiring that actually occurred during the pandemic, then what you don't understand or you don't see is that as far as the overall headcount for these different companies, they're all still in the positives. There's all still growth, even with those layoffs. And, you know, we're going to actually share a chart with you that you can check out later, but what I'd like to kind of point out to people that are thinking, you know, that some that basically the tech sector is falling apart, which I assure you it's not. Um, our demand for technology is very well in place and will only continue to grow. It's really just a marginal portion of the workforce that we're talking about. So, for example, if you look at Microsoft, yes, they laid off 10,000 employees. However, during the pandemic, their headcount growth was 77,000. So we're talking, they hired 77,000 people throughout the pandemic, and now they've laid off like 10,000. So, you know, when you start to look at that kind of proportionally, it starts to make sense. And, you know, I think can really help dispel the myth that the tech industry is somehow falling apart. It's not. Another example is Google. They laid off 12,000 employees, but they hired over 67,000 throughout the pandemic. So again, it's fractional. Um, so, you know, that's kind of one thing that I just really wanted to make sure that we touch on and share with people is, you know, sometimes it seems uh, like the numbers coming out in the media are really discouraging, but in fact, it's, it, you know, the impact is, is, is very marginal. And there's still a tremendous amount of jobs out in the market for the IT sector. I don't anticipate that any of these people are going to be unemployed for very long. Um, you know, and, and that's just kind of, I think, one of the things that we're seeing as far as market trends that I really wanted to make sure we kind of touched on. Do you have any other thoughts about it? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, just just kind of going off what you just mentioned, these are some of the most highly skilled people in the workforce. So they're, they're not going to be out of employment for long. They will find opportunities. And in fact, other groups are going to or other firms rather are going to benefit from this because they're going to be able to find top tier talent. Um, at, at the dispense of, of their un unemployment currently because of the layoffs. And, and exactly what you said is I think year to date, the number was around 60,000 tech employees that were laid off. However, I mean, when you actually take a step back and you look at unemployment, we, we are at a two decade low. We're, we're still at three and a half percent, which is below where we were pre-pandemic. So there was a spike in unemployment during the pandemic. However, we've quickly recovered as an economy. Um, and I, I, the headlines that you mentioned is exactly what you see, but you have to take it with face value. There's got to be context to it, which you, you gave a couple of examples. And um, what, what I would define this as is a, a purely a pullback from an aggressive hiring over the last, let's say, two to three years during the pandemic, as well as just over the last decade. So you, you brought up Google. So Alphabet, they, they did. Um, lay off about 12,000 employees. However, when you when you take a step back, well, well, how many did they hire in the third quarter of 22 alone? It was nearly 13,000 jobs. So the net of that is actually still positive. So it, we can't get caught up in in the media's um, kind of headlines on, on on things that don't necessarily show the full picture. Um, and same thing too is Facebook's a great example. They they had its IPO in 2012, I believe it was, so about 10, 11 years ago. Um, and they've grown their headcount by 30% during the pandemic. 
Um, and, and then, so there was, I think there was 13,000 jobs in 2020, um, followed by another 13, thir- or excuse me, 13,000 in 2021, making it the largest growth in the company's history. So um, it, it really does support the argument that they're, they're taking a defensive approach. Um, however, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it, it's going to cause shock uh, across the industry and across the markets. Absolutely. And I will say, too, just to kind of wrap up this section, um, you know, I did a little bit of research this morning to look at, you know, which industries are projected to really see some of the most significant headcount growth moving into 2023. And it was encouraging and very interesting. So IT is still part of uh, the, you know, part of the pack. It's not at the top of the pack, obviously, but it's still very much anticipated to see continued growth throughout the IT sector as far as employment. Um, but basically, healthcare came in at number one, which I thought was very important to touch on. Uh, what I also found interesting was energy. You know, energy took a good bit of a beating uh, the last few years and it's really started to rebound again now, as we know. Uh, but specifically uh, within the energy sector, looking at renewable energy is one of the fields that is anticipated to see a lot more growth, um, which also I think will come with with higher living wages and salaries. Um, you know, so that's encouraging news, too, as well as finance and accounting. Um, you know, and the service industry obviously has really began to ramp back up and that's expected to continue along with other items like construction and manufacturing. So, you know, there's multiple very positive signs and indicators that our economy is has recovered very well and will continue to actually be very robust and grow throughout 2023. Yeah, and, and that's something we look at. I mean, the demographics of our resident base is critical. So we, we like to see that diversity. We like to see the healthcare, the education, the life sciences, the technology, the finance. I mean, that 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 insulates us from any type of risk or these headlines or any impact there is in a specific sector. We, we don't necessarily feel or absorb that because we, we've diversified our resident base um, into our, our, our business plan. Absolutely. And so along those lines, let's talk about deal flow. What are we seeing in the market when it comes to the types of assets that are coming online? Yeah, so deal flow is, is interesting because of all of this uncertainty. We've, we've actually seen our, our leads double compared to what we saw in December. And I'm, I'm talking about January at this point. Um, and it's a real mix of, of opportunities. And, and one thing that stood out to me the most is there's a lot of Florida assets coming on the market. Um, and there's speculation that that's because of the high renewal increases that we're seeing on insurance, the increased assessed value. So the fixed cost putting pressure that um, ultimately has ownership groups looking to take these to take these to market instead of absorb these increases and, and ultimately kind of deplete or or, um, or or diminish some of their returns that they were seeing over the last two three years because of the excessive rent growth that we saw in the Florida market. So that that's specific to Florida. However, we're also seeing a, a mix of deals. Some of your high quality institutional assets. We're seeing new lease ups coming online. Uh, we're seeing stabilized deals. We're also seeing wh- what I would define as more of your bottom of the barrel, for lack of a better term. We're, we're seeing deals that come on market in, in the 70s, 80s products with high bad debt, a lot of deferred maintenance, which we're, we're not necessarily looking at at this point. I mean, we're, we're searching for opportunity where it comes. But in these assets, some of them, uh, they, they just don't make sense. They don't pencil. It's not something we're willing to take the risk on. And, and for us to execute a business plan when there's better quality, quality product coming yeah. online. Um 
And then uh, another thing that's really interesting uh, on the opportunity front is not necessarily distress, but we are seeing assets that are not stabilized. And the broker's first question to us, and, and we're thinking the same exact thing. So we, we have two deals that we looked at that are in the mid 80s percent for, for occupancy for, for various reasons, whether it's unit upgrades, they're, they're executing their value add plan, um, and they just have a lot of vacancy while they're turning with the GC. But the first question is, well, how are you going to finance these deals? And, and we're asking the same question. I mean, it, we, we don't want to put bridge debt on these deals because it, it just doesn't make sense for us right now. Um, and it doesn't make sense for the seller. So we're trying to think out of the box, get a little bit more creative. And if you're at 88% and you're trending to, let's say, the low 90s over the next 30, 60 days, well, maybe we transact based on a stabilized NOI. If you guys, meaning if the ownership groups that, that are currently managing the property, if you can stabilize this asset and we can put fixed agency debt on this, we, you will make more money on the on the, the front end because we're, we'd be willing to pay you more for that asset. But if we're going to put bridge debt and take over at 85% and incur that risk, it's going to be reflected directly from their purchase price. So sure. we, we, we're trying to, like I said, work with some of these groups that if, if they don't need to sell um, and, and they can hold for another five, six months, depending on the asset and, and what type of debt uh, they have and what's maturing, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll transact three, four months from now when you're stabilized and it makes sense for both of us. We'll, we'll pay a higher premium so you'll get more in your pocket and we'll take less risk. And that's, that's, that's something we're, we're looking into. Um, very preliminary, premature, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see where it takes us. Very interesting. And I think that, you know, we all expected that we would see um, increased deal flow. We expected that because of, you know, the challenges in the economy, this was going to create some distressed assets that we knew would come to market um, or, you know, as, as you were saying, you know, not really stabilized assets. And it's interesting to think about it from the financing standpoint. So that I assume would definitely begin to also kind of thin out the competition a little bit amongst uh, sponsors that are actually out there buying assets, because now it's going to be obviously only the groups that are strong enough to qualify for the right type of financing that are going to make those deals work. Uh, whereas the groups that just, you know, really can't handle those types of financing terms or meet those requirements are going to be probably also eliminated. Yeah, you'd be surprised because you'd think there's less less groups bidding on the same deal, which is pretty much the case, assuming that supply was the same over the last, say, 18 months. However, what we're finding is if there are quality deals or if there are deals that are underwriting, they're penciling well, there's actually a lot of groups looking at it because there's just nothing on the market. So it, it, it's kind of a, a hit or miss. It depends on the deal, depends on the market. Uh, but what it comes down to is in, in the most simplistic way is buyers think it's 2008 and sellers think it's 2021. So the, the, the bid ass spread just, it, it's not collapsing. And now you have this uncertainty in the interest rate environment where n nobody knows where we're gonna end up. So th there, there's a lot of deals, there's, excuse me, there's a lot of groups on the sideline. Um, however, we're active buyers, we'll, we'll buy if it makes sense. We're being very selective. However, uh, we'll, we'll transact for the right, the right deal. Interesting, very interesting. Uh, definitely appreciate some insights into the behind the scenes of what it's looking like. Uh, from a deal flow standpoint. And now, let, uh, you know, I think to kind of just wrap this up, let's talk about what, you know, really is going to be most important, which is how are we going to mitigate these risks? How are we going to manage our assets? And how are we underwriting for that for deals, you know, moving forward? Yeah, great question. So from from an underwriting perspective, a lot of questions that I'm getting recently from, from groups, people that are just getting into the market, investors, is how are you underwriting bad debt? And that's a very complex topic, specifically coming out of COVID. Uh, but there's a lot of data to support 
um, some of our assumptions. So from bad debt, for, for those new investors, th mm -hmm. this is the money that is being billed to residents that is not being collected. So that is ultimately written off once they leave the apartment community. So that's when it shows up on the profit and loss statement um, is, is after they're evicted typically or, or move out, I should say. So it could be anywhere from seven to 14 days after the move out date is when you'll see that write off hit your profit and loss statement. However, th there's some groups that take that at face value and they'll underwrite based on the trailing 12. However, we've recently seen specifically um, one group that had a, a, an internal policy that they were not going to evict any residents that could prove any level of financial hardship in addition to those that um, were, were also struggling. So that actually expired, um, let's call it summer of this past year. So what, what we saw is zero bad debt on the T12 because nobody was getting evicted. Mm -hmm. However, there's another supplemental report that we request on every single deal we look at is, is called your AR report or your delinquency report, which shows you residents that are currently in the property and how much money they owe. And, it, and oftentimes it's segmented into buckets. So you can see zero to 30 days, 60 to 90, 90 plus. And what that shows you is, is the staleness or, or the, the, the level of delinquency. So obviously if you have a lot of delinquency in the zero to 30 days, that could be timing of when rents build and when it's due. However, if you're towards the end of the month and you see a lot of money in the 90 day bucket, that, that means they're Residents haven't been paying paying rent for a long time. So again, we, we saw a deal that on the T12, they had $10,000, $12,000 of, of write-offs on the T12, but there was $300,000 sitting on the AR report. So that impacts us because when we acquire the property, we have to uh, assume these residents, and if they didn't pay the prior ownership group, I have no reason to believe that they're going to pay sure. us. So this has to directly reflect our underwriting assumptions. And we, we pad that. So if, if, if we think that there's going to be an excessive amount of bad debt being written off, we'll, we'll add more than we will expect. However, those aren't the deals that we're looking at today. Um, but we take that same strategy for even quality deals so that, that we're looking at. So that, that's an interesting point. So going back, what we do is we, we reference the T12 um, to kind of look in hindsight of, of how does this property perform? What does the resident base look like? And then we reference the current report to assume what is the level of risk that we are assuming in year one, year two, um, and, and potentially even year three. I mean, look at look at some of the markets. The court systems are backed up. So mm -hmm. we have residents that have been in some of these properties we're looking at for 18 months and, and they just haven't paid any rent, but the court system's backed up. So they haven't been able to um, take possession of the apartment. So we, we really look at it from multiple different perspectives perspectives from a bad debt perspective. Um, and that's kind of one of the, the primary things that is being asked in today today's environment. Very interesting. I also look at it as a management opportunity uh, because to me, I wouldn't want to rely solely on the data based upon the T12 because that's also an indication of how the property is managed. And I think that, and I know you and I have talked about this, one of the one of the most critical things about where we are today in the market when it comes to managing assets is really having operational efficiency and excellence. It is really managing those properties well. Um, because of the way you know things were before, operators didn't necessarily have to be really strong in management to still make a really nice return. But that luxury has has left us to a certain extent. And now, you know, in order to really maximize returns to investors, it's really going to come down to that management play. So to me, you know, when it comes to underwriting, I wouldn't want to rely solely on the data from the T12 because it's also an indication of how that group managed the property 
that we are going to be coming in and replacing. And I think helps us identify probably opportunities for improvement where we can come in and manage more efficiently and make those improvements. Um, you know, as I always say, value add is not just doing renovations, it's really overhauling the operations and streamlining, you know, the, the operations of the of, of the property. That's correct. And, and even just, just using the bad debt scenario is we, we also looked at a deal recently where um, the T12 had very minimal bad debt. And then when we pulled the, the current delinquency report, 50% of the balances were residents that already moved out of the property a, a, a month, two, three months ago. So that just goes to show it's, it's the lack of execution. So that's sitting on your balance sheet and that, that has to be written off at some point in time. And unfortunately, a, a buyer like us, we need to expect that. And if that's written off over the T12, it's going to impact our loan proceeds. It's going to impact our sizing. Um, when you see $100,000 written off over the T3 when the lender's looking at it and they use that in their sizing. So it, it, it is a, a, a very prevalent conversation. And I should mention, I, I know we talked about the operational efficiency, but there's a lot of things that we're looking into and other groups should be too, is is really looking at revenue generating items. Mm -hmm. So looking at utility billbacks, looking at your intake fees, how does that compare to other other comps in the market? Um, look, looking at other ancillary income opportunities, national contract negotiations, increased fees, ramp ups. So there, there's a lot of things on the top line that owner and operators should be doing right now to offset some of the rising costs of fixed expenses like tax and insurance. Um, and also a, a, a big conversation today is based on the consumer confidence. So what is that going to do to retention? Are residents going to be more sticky or, or elastic, if you will, uh, requiring uh, less turnover, which which needs to directly reflect in your renewal pricing strategies, because retention is such a critical component. And it also impacts your your expense portion, because most most folks would look at retention and say, OK, well, that that's just your make ready. It's your turn cost, your hard cost to turn an apartment if somebody were to leave. However, there's more to that. There, there's it, approximately and, and use this as, as kind of a, a general rule of thumb is every move out will cost you approximately one month's rent and expenses. And, and the reason for that, and I'll, I'll kind of walk through some basic fundamental math is you have your hard turn costs. So your make ready expenses to do the car, clean the carpets, paint, paint the walls, any other miscellaneous repairs, let's say that's $500. And then you have frictional vacancy. So the, the time period in which resident moves out and another resident moves in which historically changes and it fluctuates based on absorption and other supply components. But using, let's say, a $1,500 average rent, that's $50 per day. So your vacancy loss, assuming a 10-day turn, is $500. So there's 1000 But even more so on the marketing side, the customer acquisition cost, you have to go find and replace that prior resident. That's going to cost another $400 to $500, depending on your marketing strategy. So all in, that's, that's $1,500 using a 10-day turn. Um, which again comes down to the operational efficiency. You can reduce that number drastically. So when you look at your operations, look at how quick you're turning days. So that, that's where it comes down to the analytics and, and the discipline to say, well, if you're turning days at a 10-day 10, 10 average, that's going to cost you using a 10,000 unit portfolio, assuming a 50% retention rate, you're going to turn 5,000 apartments. So if you have 10-day turns at $1,500 rents, you're going to pay 2.2, 2.3 million dollars in vacancy loss, and, and that's very theoretical. But when you actually break down the numbers, if you turn that 10-day turn into a seven-day turn, 
saving three days, you could potentially save $750,000 across your portfolio and you apply a cap rate to that. And again, this is theoretical. This is opportunity. Sure. This isn't necessarily a hard cost. It, it's a general rule of thumb. You could be turning days in 14 units. And this every day that you are, your rent roll is not billing and collecting rent is one day that you're, is one more day of opportunity for your NOI. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, just to kind of soft, add the little soft touch to it, uh, this is why, for those of you that actively invest with us, you know, each month we send out a report on the property's performance. And I actually always include information about the renovations and, and believe it or not, the resident activities. And in case you've never understood why we include that type of data, it's because it matters. Creating those sense of community, uh, having those resident events, you know, showing appreciation and treating your tenants respectfully, uh, working with them, having, you know, a very appealing property, the curb appeal, the positive word of mouth, all of these factors are really important and they do impact the bottom line. And it's just kind of the right thing to do. So, you know, I'm glad that you actually touched on that and explained it more from, you know, the meaning and the significance, significance of it, you know, from the bottom line. But I think also, you know, um, it comes down to making sure, you know, that we're committed to not being, you know, slumlords and having properties that are horrible to live on and really creating positive environments that tenants are happy to remain living in. That's right. It all matters. That's right. And, and exactly what you just said is at the end of the day, if, if you're not creating a different experience for the same exact product next door, you're going to be a commodity, just like mm -hmm. the rental car industry. If you're going to rent a, a Toyota Camry at, at Hertz Corporation, well, why, why wouldn't you rent it from National? If it's the same price, the same product, the same exact car, it's about the service and the difference, the, the value add. And that's directly correlated in how you manage the property, how you interact with your residents, because at the end of the day, we're, we're renting and we're trying to create memories. These are where people live. Um, so we're, we are, in, in theory, when you fundamentally think about it, we're giving you four walls and a roof and the service is how we differentiate. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that actually gives us a good place to kind of wrap things up today. And I will give a challenge to our listeners uh, and for those of you watching us on YouTube, our viewers, um, to if you have any creative ideas of how to build a better sense of community, you know, within an apartment community, let us know. Um, you know, it takes many minds to have really great uh, and innovative ideas. And we're always open to suggestions. And I think it's just kind of fun to uh, share that wealth of information with other people, too, that are owners and operators or active, uh, you know, investors, or even for those that are passive investors that maybe want to spread the information along. So sure. guys, don't forget to like, rate and review and maybe leave us a comment uh, with your thoughts. Yeah. That sounds great. And if there's anything that you want to hear more about, um, feel free to leave that in the comments as well. We, we'd love to dig in. And, and that's what the purpose of me coming on is, is talking about the recaps, the market, and anything that you want, to, you want to hear about from the inside out. So, guys, thanks so much for joining us today. Ryan will be back in a month to keep you up to speed with all things market trends and data. And in the meantime, I encourage you to continue to be bold. Build an extraordinary life and keep moving forward. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.